0: The world Craft Club Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. A time devoted to world building and its impact on narrative, where we discuss any and all topics involving the crafting of fictional settings to inspire your creativity. My name is James. And my name is Seth. And we are your hosts for this delightful half hour. All right. Hello and welcome to the Worldcraft Club Podcast, dear listeners. We have a very special episode for you today. Why you ask? Because here with us today is David Schmidt, webcomic author and creator of the Recovery Web Comic. How are you doing there, sir?
1: Very good. How are you today, James?
0: I'm doing real well. And so you know as well, we, we have Seth here with us today, but he will not be speaking. Uh so he will be he will be kind of with us in spirit for this one. So hi, Seth. He can't talk back. He's on mute. (laughs) Let's just kick it off right here. So what is Recovery about?
1: Okay, so Recovery is um, a webcomic that is about uh, mutants living in the post-apocalyptic American West. Maybe the the tagline or the, the simplest way to try to explain it.
0: Yeah. No, I follow you on that. It's interesting because you deal with a specific type of mutant, right? Because when I hear that, I I immediately go to Fallout and think of ghouls and super mutants. But your type of change was very specific. So do you want to tell us a little bit about how that works?
1: Sure. Um, There is a disease that strikes humanity um, called zoomorphism. It hit absolutely every living human being, which is epidemiologically speaking. I think I almost said that right. But... uh, (laughs) Uh, you know it's it's not really maybe how it would work but for the sake of story everyone gets infected the disease yeah uh, referred to as zoomorphism yeah. so it actually gives everyone animal traits and in the first generation it was all one everybody became hybridized with like one species and mm. so subsequent generations you start to see that there are some characters who maybe possess traits from a few different animals I took that route of like the animal mutant, um, mm. something that uh's always appealed to me.
0: Yeah, I wonder why the animal mutants then. Like, was there a, was there a specific thing you're kind
1: of harnessing or hearkening to? I mean, yeah, and uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> 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 right I grew on. Grew up yeah. in the '90s, so that was at the height of their power. You know, but it wasn't Turtle just power. them; it was also the. Um, the street sharks were big. And I mean, all of these oh, yeah. riffing off of Ninja Turtles. I mean, one of the reasons I felt like, you know, that's a good avenue to pursue is because in reading like Eastman and Laird, the guys that created the Ninja Turtles, like their inspiration came deliberately and intentionally from uh, Frank Miller's Daredevil series. Oh, what?
0: Like, OK, th- th- I, I did. I did not know that. Could you could you dig into that a little bit? So how yeah, how did so- they get inspiration from Daredevil?
1: So they were real big fans of Frank Miller and particularly his Daredevil run that was going on like about that time. Yeah. Uh, so they wanted to basically do a parody of it. And so if you read the original Teenage Mutant yeah. Ninja Turtles comics, they're a lot darker and grittier. They definitely have a tongue-in-cheek edge to them. And yeah. I mean like the whole idea of the evil ninja clan being called the Foot, very much a parody of the ninja clan from Daredevil, which was the hand. So wild. Like the you see a container of what we've come to know as ooze in the Ninja Turtles world fall off the back of a truck. It almost hits a guy, like splashes into his eyes a la Daredevil, but then it goes down into a sewer grate instead, mutating four turtles. So like they <laughs> deliberately rift off of Daredevil. And so I feel like by making my own like anthropomorphic comic i feel like in a sense i'm just carrying on that tradition of there's nothing new under the sun let's do what we love so that's kind of where i'm coming from with that
0: i really like that i I think a lot of um a lot of artists strain too hard to generate something that's totally original and you can like pull a creative muscle and just make something totally wacky if you're not careful or or dig too deep into a concept that uh, kind of hasn't been explored fully and so you kind of find out that it's not quite as deep as you thought it was whereas if you take something that has this long history behind it you know the sense of um anthropomorphized animals i even thought of biker mice from mars right Do you remember that and so like you you you're hearkening back to a long tradition and it kind of comes with a lot of that baggage kind of already with it so a lot of the tropes are present and you can draw from them to tell the story you want to tell because it doesn't necessarily have you don't have to dive deep into some lore because everybody kind of already has the schema prepared okay they're animals like uh at one point i think you have a a a hawk character who has a rifle and he flies and shoots a bunch of guys while he's flying and um it's neat that you kind of like you're kind of not left wondering the rules because it's almost like the rule of cool kind of applies with that. Of course the Ninja Turtles can spin on their turtle shells on their back and pull sweet breakdance moves, even though we don't see turtles doing that in the wild unless they are deeply uncomfortable. But like that's kind of, no, that's neat. I, I, I think that's really cool. And so you actually threw kind of a second genre in there as well uh, with the post-apocalyptic kind of style. So we've got the anthropomorphized humans who adopt these traits. And I love that you tease the secondary traits coming in now because I'm, I'm super curious about that because I'll be looking out for that when I reread your comic at some point. But the, um, the post-apocalyptic. So why, why, do, why need there be an apocalypse after this? What, what did that set you up for?
1: Um, It set me up for taking technology back down um, to a more of an 1800s level. Um, You know, communication isn't instantaneous, coast to coast. Mm -hmm. Travel is more difficult. And Mm -hmm. it just, it let me set the clocks back to, to do, to blend in the genre that I was really most interested in blending in, which was Western.
0: Ah, so it's kind of like the setup for functionally a a Western, a Western
1: feel. As, yeah. as opposed to just, like, putting it on a different planet or in the, the distant past where the science fiction angle might not make as much sense. Um, mm. I wanted it in, you know, more or less present day, yeah. but I wanted to, to have the cowboys, the gunslingers, so...
0: Mm. See, and and this is something that I found interesting about about uh, about your comic in particular. So I, I knew Seth would be excited about this one. He's he's a Louis L'Amour fan, so um I, I had a sense that he would lose his mind if we were if we were talking to somebody who was uh, interested in westerns. And uh, I think uh, he was nodding vigorously as well while we were discussing uh, the Frank Miller's uh, inspiration for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So this is this is really Seth's jam, um which was which was really exciting for us. But as we go over this. I like the way that you've constructed the world because we have these two different kind of dichotomies we well two different dichotomies it's a dichotomy it's um we're talking about uh like a spectrum on world building all right so on one end you've got tolkien which is like, you have exact measurements of Middle Earth, you know where things are going, and the translations are so airtight that, like, you can read something in English and know whether it is a Dwarven ruin or an Elven ruin, because you know the language well enough to say, that sounds Elvish or that sounds Dwarvish. And on the other hand, you have J.K. Rowling, uh, who created a, a lightly built world, and um, as we were talking earlier about, like, you know, potential of, like, Arthur Weasley, like, pre-recording, the idea that... He might have known while all those things do because he works in the mystery, uh, in, in the uh, misuse of muggle artifacts field, but he pretends he doesn't know anything about muggle stuff. He would probably be the most educated wizard about muggle stuff. Now, the reality is that J.K. Rowling just probably didn't think of that. But the fans have backfilled this because J.K. Rowling wrote an incredible mystery story, right? So. On either ends of these spectrums, you have really good stories with characters that draw fans by the thousands. So we come up with a scale. One ends Rowling, one ends Tolkien. I kind of see your initial world building as being more on the Rowling side, more toward like the – so on 0 to 10, probably like a 3, with Rowling being 0 and Tolkien being 10. So what I love about that is that that gives you room to focus on your characters. It gives you room to draw attention to the things they're going through, the the ironically very human experience that your characters are having. So I'm, I'm kind of – I'm super into that. I think that's a, that's a neat way to do it because if I recall, your apocalypse happens because it just sort of happens. You, I think the literal line is somebody threw a bomb, right? right. And I think that's a great way to lay it out. And the zoomorphism as well isn't fully like explained. It's given as an assumption, which leaves you with these characters who are just kind of trying to find their way with something they can't quite explain. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, I mean, what, what are your kind of thoughts on that? Do you think that's a fair analysis or um, would you, would you want to give me some pushback on that?
1: No, I think that's, that's pretty fair. I wanted to avoid excessive exposition um you know i could have written an entire like basically you know a prologue that would have been a prequel to explain well how did we get here yeah or i could have jumped right into here's a bunch of mutants fighting each other so the first couple pages you get uh, a firefight and so that was kind of more what i wanted was to jump into the action these guys are fighting each other and then you kind of figure out as you go You know, how did we get here? Who are these people? Why do I care? That kind of thing. I think that sometimes um, it's to go back to Tolkien and and I'm not criticizing this chapter because I love it. But Mm. Concerning Hobbits is like what? A 20 page expose on the life of what is intentionally the most mundane creature that he created.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and, and uh, deliberately mundane.
1: <laughs> yes, and it's it's wonderful. I love Tolkien. Oh yeah, not yeah, yeah, what yeah. I wanted to do with my story.
0: Yeah. yeah, I I 100% follow you, and like I'm 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 glad you took that how you did because I think it's it's not it's definitely not a critique to say that sometimes exposition like, exhaustive exposition in the style of Tolkien. It's not the artistic direction that you want to go. Um, So I I guess here's a question for you. So how much of your sort of exposition avoidance do you think comes into the medium itself? Do you think uh, the comic book medium just lends itself well to, uh, or for that matter, doesn't lend itself well to exhaustive exposition, exposition? So you kind of wind up just... Throwing some panels up and some art and kind of going like, OK, I can I can let people read between the lines because I'm literally giving them a, a picture of what's going on.
1: Um, I think that. Uh, in all honesty, the comic book medium lends itself to whatever you want to do with it, mm. um, I think you have a very wide spectrum of everything from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to Watchmen. Where yeah. you know, you can have something that is incredibly deep, incredibly dense. Reading Watchmen takes it out of you, like reading a large novel. You mm. can just pick up nin- Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like this is really cool. These are like really great pictures of man-sized turtles beating up ninjas, and so then <laughs> you can put it down when you're done. I I think it's more the genre and the direction I wanted to go, lent itself to that sparse. That sparse prologue, that sparse uh, world yeah. rate right on the front end.
0: I like that a lot. Uh, d- it kind of makes me think you're, you're you're alluding to something that Seth and I have kind of often come back to. Seth writes game lit, so mm-hmm. um, one of the reasons that he enjoys that artwork is that there's an inherent lightness to it, um, and it seems like you're kind of trying to harness some of that. Like some sometimes I think there is a uh, a draw in world building. Uh, that basically says in order for something to be deep and in order for it to have significance, it must be dark and it must be gray. Um, and it seems as if in avoiding kind of the gritty details and the exposition and like I noticed there was not a panel of a bunch of zoomorphic animals just eating each other to survive in the post apocalyptic wasteland. Like it seems it seems as if you were not you weren't you were basically trying to say, well, look, here's the picture except the reality. I'm not going to try to. Lay the road starring Vigo Mortison on you. You know, like it's, uh, is, is that partly the intent?
1: Yeah. Um, obviously nobody is publishing their first draft. Um, <laughs> well, I shouldn't say nobody, uh, but, uh, there were some iterations like in my head of recovery that were a lot darker mm. and that in fact did involve capitalism, like the, uh, <laughs> the carnivores. Yes, uh, yeah they are. They're like the um, they're they're a gang. They're in some ways similar to like just give some context to people, the the raiders from Fallout. Something yeah. they're they're the the hardened warrior gang.
0: They certainly have the punk aesthetic.
1: Um, yes, yes, with a a heavy punk and biker um kind of aesthetic to them. Um. And there was a there was a time where I was like, yeah, well, these would like they would like. Eat people that they thought were inferior, and then I just I realized how like dark a world I was building in my head, and how mm-hmm. much I didn't want to live in that long yeah. enough to make that comic. So it just kind of became a matter of okay, what do I really like? And yeah. it was okay. I really like, I mean, there's some great dark material out there that I've really oh, sure. yeah. But over the course of my life, my favorite things have been tailspin and tail. <laughs> yes. Uh, You know, I didn't want to do that kind of world where, yeah, yeah, they're animals because everybody is an animal. Like, there's no no reason for it other than Walt Disney decided Mickey was a mouse and everybody following him was also a talking animal. So while I didn't want to go quite that far to the other side of the spectrum, I think there's a lot of great stuff. Uh, My wife and I are actually watching Gargoyles in the evening together now. (laughs) Um, which is another like great, like, you know, there's some depth, there's a little bit of darkness, Yeah, but just giving me the thumbs up, <laughs> but it's, it's, I guess bottom line, it's like, it's family friendly, yeah. you know, and yeah, yeah. you don't feel like you need a shower afterwards. And yeah, to me, that's kind of, that's what I wanted to put out into the world because like I said, I was, you know, the, 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 the dark direction I was going with recovery, I was like, I don't, I don't want to dwell here. So mm. Why don't I do something that is a little more fun?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um so I, I I love you raised the carnivores and a few other people that exist in your world and kind of following up on that. Um it seems as if everybody has these different views of zoomorphism and the way i interpreted the carnivores when they when i first saw them come on the scene is that these guys have fully embraced their their zoomorphic state so they've basically just said uh well i got sharp teeth i got sharp claws plus 10 on stealth i guess i'll just be a jaguar you know and what do jaguars do they eat other mammals so i'm just going to go ahead and live in a predatory fashion now i know uh we're saying we nixed uh the cannibalism with the carnivores but that was the kind of sense that i got from it is they're basically saying like yeah
1: they're they're still going with that name you know they are they're intentionally presenting themselves as the predator as Mm -hmm. um the alphas so i mean i don't i'm not saying it's impossible that you would see uh quote carnivore that is some kind of you know maybe a rhinoceros or something you know not 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 explicitly right that's not like part of the Mm. the law necessarily but it's just a uh but yes i mean more more to your point yeah they are they have accepted zoomorphism they have uh they take pride in their powers their abilities whatever it may be and and i think it's important to note here um I actually set the story 30 years post-infection kind of to tease out some of these ideas a little better. So you've got people that have been born with this disease now. So to them, totally normal. There's nothing to see here. This is what life is. But uh, regardless of of whether they're first or second generation, the thing with with the carnivores is definitely that they have just – they've accepted it and they see that they've been given or, or they may consider that they've been given a superior gift to others mm. around them because they are, you know, they're, um, they're tough. They have claws. They've got fangs, venom, whatever it might be. Well, as far as I have published now, there's not that many carnivore characters that have been really yeah, out.
0: That's what I found interesting. It's early on. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, uh, but there's a character who's who is a leader among the carnivores. And um, shortly after encountering him, encountering him, um, there's first a moment where uh, he settles a dispute pretty amicably. And then he kind of goes home and meets his kids. And you can tell, like, he's a good dad. You know what I mean? Like, yes, and scratch. Yeah. And I really (laughs) love that character. And I, I, one of the things I liked about him is that you basically get these characters, the carnivores, who are living in this world, and they kind of seem to have embraced wholesale their zoomorphism. And they live, uh, it kind of becomes apparent later on that they have these quite harsh rules, and there's sort of an uneasy alliance um, between them and, and the people of the town. But they kind of, that you paint them in a light that is uh, sympathetic to their to the people that are present there, if not their ideology specifically, which I, mean, I find really interesting.
1: Well, I think you have to bear in mind, uh, and particularly with Scratch, not to uh, tip my hand too much, um, these are people, many of these people are have been born into this or been in it since they were so young that you could argue they're in a culture that they had no control over being part of. Now, mm-hmm. they're still responsible for what they choose to do with that. Yeah. But You know, I think there's going to be when I start to post again, you're pretty soon going to meet someone who's only been mentioned by name so far. And that is Napoleon Mm. is the leader of the carnivore gang that is like there's kind of there's affiliates of it. Napoleon is the the local uh, warlord. Okay. so I think when we meet him, we'll see the. The. kind of the darkest side of the carnivores so i'm excited to do that so that people can see that because most of your experience with the carnivores up to this point have been scratch and he is certainly not a knight in shining armor yeah but you know maybe a knight in black leather i'm, I'm very much looking forward to developing particularly that storyline um, as well as all the other characters um so I mean, there's there's a lot to dig into. And, uh, you know, we've mostly here talked about the carnivores.
0: Yeah, the yeah, yeah,
1: I kind of faced here is I built such like an ensemble kind of I mean, I, I guess that refers to maybe that's not the right word. I, I built such a large mean,
0: yeah. cast,
1: mm. that I have a lot of juggling to do. Um, so well, that's a fun little thing
0: yeah no, I follow you it's been' it's, it has been interesting and that kind of draws out some of the other factions that are present so in it to kind of shift a little bit away from um, the carnivores as a whole there's the um, there's the the townsfolk as well so right. um it's uh your your comic is called Recovery and that's actually the name of the town, isn't it? That's correct it. yes so what what are the people of recovery? like and how did how did you build that faction what did they believe about zoomorphism
1: i don't think like the town of recovery itself i don't think has a unified position on the matter
0: that's interesting
1: yeah um i think so my main character who i've not yet mentioned (laughs) uh, he suffers he suffers a mild case of main character syndrome um i am kind of trying to paint him more interesting um Hmm. but i think you know you see that a lot with your um I mean, to talk about the the two, uh, the two stories we've talked about already, think uh, Frodo and Harry. There's a little bit of like empty vessel kind of a – it's an easier trap to fall into than you might think because you think I'm just going to make the most interesting character my main character. Yeah. And, and you start writing and you see all these interesting characters popping up around your main character and you're like, what happened? Yeah. But, yeah. Um, yeah. So my main character is Ulysses. He is, mm-hmm. at the beginning of the story, the interim sheriff of um, of recovery. He's not quite ready to take that position on. Um, but the, the vacancy's been left uh, due to the murder of his uncle, who was the former sheriff. Uh, so Ulysses is uh, a bison or has a bison strain of zoomorphism, I guess is maybe the best way to put it. Yeah, I like that. Um, and so his position is that he would he's nostalgic for a time he never lived in yeah so he's he was born into this world with zoomorphism he's only um and th- this is a canon fact that has not yet been in there and it'll be some time before it's really relevant both of his parents were bison like or had hmm. the bison strain so that's why he's only uh, manifesting like one species yeah, yeah, so he would, he would like to return to a, a normalcy that he's never really known. He would like to not have horns coming out of the side of his head, not be covered in brown fur. Um,
0: he idealizes the past a little bit.
1: Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Zeke, on the other hand, is kind of embraced having four arms. So Zeke's one of his deputies. He's a, a fly mutant. He can um, – he's got – Uh, forearms he's got eyes that kind of wrap around because he's a fly so like i mean and in like twitchy muscle reflexes so he's like a born gunfighter yeah Uh, and i think that he's accepted that and even maybe he's a little proud of it yeah so you know but they can coexist because they're not no one's trying they're in that town they're not trying to like force each other into any particular thing it's just we're all surviving together because we want to live and we want to live in a society that's not like all um uh fang and fury so to speak
0: yeah i, I mean do, do you feel like this idea of world building uh sorry this idea of of, of rebuilding uh do you feel like this sense of recovery is is kind of knit into your world building and like some of the choices that you make explicitly in it so it's kind of like um this notion that you name the, the comic after the town recovery, and in the town recovery you have a sheriff who kind of longs for this idealized past that he couldn't have before, and, and kind of wants that. Um, and they must have named the town recovery for a reason, so do you sense then that that idea of rebuilding after a cataclysmic event, both the zoomorphism and the the apocalyptic events that followed, do you feel that has kind of played a little bit into the world building choices that you've made?
1: Yeah. And I think it, it, a lot of it happened very organically where it's like pieces just started dovetailing together. Hmm. So I think I'd rather call it providence than luck. Um, hmm. but there was definitely a sense of it wasn't something that I had anticipated when I started like writing things down and drawing things. Yeah. It was just like, so I I actually took the name recovery as a town name from a Frank Turner song of the same name. Okay. Um, He says in the, in the chorus uh, it's a long road out to recovery from here. And it just something about recovery as like a, a town or a destination stuck out to me. And I'm like, I'm going to use that story someday. Um, I used it in something that I was calling New West until I discovered that New West was already a post-apocalyptic Western comic, <laughs> uh, and uh, so then I just decided, okay, well a lot of westerns are named after the town. Recovery's a cool, iconic name, and it does it does really speak to the theme. So there is some subtlety to it, but maybe that's where the depth of it is, and maybe where it goes beyond Ducktales.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm personally a fan of uh, of, of recovery, like uh, as, as, as a title. I think that's cool. I, I like the Western feel to it and the inspiration that you got from it. And it it has caused me to think on your work more as I've been reading it and kind of framed it for me. And so you, you kind of hinted a little bit about your world design in this, like some of it kind of seemed to come together. Uh, some of it was inspired by songs, some of it inspired by Westerns, things like that. But like, what what is your process when you're when you're getting ready to world build? Do you find that you're like a um binders full of data kind of guy, or do you uh shoot from the hip so to speak?
1: I have attempted storytelling many times, and I think that's what I would primarily think of myself as as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. So yeah. not so much. So world building is like an an incidental thing for yeah. me. Yeah. And that's not at all meant to denigrate world building. No, no, no. It's no, super no. cool. And I actually the the most world building I've done was uh, is on a a book that I am kind of in the middle of writing. Mm. You know, I'll write in it for I'll write it for a while, and then I'll just take a break for more than a year sometimes. Try and get back to it. So it is a more not deliberately Tolkien, but it's a more Tolkien esque world hmm i've definitely done a lot more world building in that and my process there has been starting to write a story and then really thinking on that and and going back and rewriting so really most of the world building notes are right there in the transcript yeah. or the manuscript that is and um but i i mean i also have some notebooks on that one that are like you know me trying to develop my own language which i'm not a linguist so that's a- <laughs> um um And, you know, those kind of things of really hardcore world building because that was like a fantasy world, whereas with this comic, it was more like, all right, you know, um, Western mutants fill in the details as we go. And um, yeah, which is maybe a bit reckless uh, and, and it definitely can leave you with like, oh, I really should have done this when you've already written something counter to that into your thing and you've published a page and now it's canon. So are you going to like go back and revise your canon over and over again? Um, Which maybe you can when you have, you know, dozens of fan versus thousands. But um, yeah, yeah, it's a, it, so for me, it's like, I guess what my my answer to your question would be that my world building tends to be more after I've come up with a concept or, or particularly a character, it's like you need a world to live in. So then I, Backfill. Okay, what do I need to accomplish the storytelling elements that I want to use? What do I need to do to build a world that allows for that? So you got it. It's like I don't start with the rules and then come up with the players. Start with the players and then I come up with what rules would allow that.
0: And Mm -hmm. that definitely there
1: becomes a give and take.
0: Yeah, yeah. I see. I see kind of kind of the two sides of this. I see that you could potentially trip over some stuff that you've established as canon and realize i really didn't kind of want it to work out like that or this doesn't really fit or something like that um but but at the same time like it's uh in a prior interview we had uh a friend of mine uh had done some research into uh tolkien and found that a lot of tolkien's work was kind of surprisingly fly by the seat of your pants like Mm -hmm. like uh, and and, in his early stages he was developing his world on the fly even though we we look at it and go oh my gosh he wrote an entire language um and a a number of other things you know he did Mm -hmm. he did remarkably well um and it was a I, i think much of much of that effort may have been a little bit more based around the story he wanted to tell than we necessarily would have would have thought but obviously he then went ham and wrote about the war of wrath and a pile of other things that he that were you know historical events in his story and uh you know that's kind of it's interesting but since since you kind of construct your world in this kind of um kind of very fluid way that follows your characters and your narrative. And I I think as well, it seems as if the unspoken character in your book is, is, is your fans and the people that read it, that you're kind of accommodating them. Almost when you said the players rather than the game, I was thinking the players are kind of your fans as well. In a sense, you're kind of looking at the kind of story you want to tell and putting yourself in the place of the reader and going like, how does, how can I build a world that fits this, this story? So, have you found any good ways while you're doing this to just make sure you maintain that consistency, even, even as you're kind of writing on the fly,
1: keeping the, uh, the pages I've already published handy, mostly being able to go back and say, okay, did he, you know, was he wearing that on that side of his shirt or whatever? I mean, and that maybe is not so much world. Yeah. But um, you know, those kinds of just continuity things where it's like, you know, when you're watching a movie and like, someone's hair is braided and then it cuts to a different camera and their hair is not braided and those kinds of like things you're I'm just you know I'm desperately trying to not have that be you know something but I guess that's probably my biggest thing is just keeping the old stuff the in scripts and and final copies and all that mm-hmm. right there at my fingertips where I can flip back through and be like okay what side of town is this on Yeah. Um, You know, so it's like I don't – and that actually is something that I've done in terms of world building is drawn crude maps of the town Yeah. where it's just like, okay, so important buildings. Like the church is over here and the garage is over here and the sheriff's office is is to the north of that. And that kind of keeps me from drawing a character coming out of the church and turning left to go somewhere where last time he turned right. So, you know, it just – those kind of things, I think, are where world building comes in, yeah. Most directly, because I got a kind of a wide open world. It's it mostly is taking place right there in recovery, um, and so it's like, what's going on in China right now? I have no idea. I assume yeah. there are mutants of kind of indigenous animals, yeah. Uh, yeah, in every country, which is a really exciting thing to explore. Um, I don't know that I'll ever do <laughs> like too that
0: well and and it's kind of neat to leave that to the imagination of your readers as well um like i have often found that i i really don't like being told how things should end like uh early in the mass effect series they have this amazing moment where they meet with a with the reaper these giant robots and they're the chief antagonist you don't realize it till a certain point in the game and somebody is kind of wondering aloud they go well, why is it that the Reapers come every 50,000 years and kill all sentient life? And someone responds with, they're machines that are eons old. We may never understand why they do this. And I was like, and that's a wrap. Just call it quits there. I don't want to know any more about it. Like, I just want to think about this for ages because it is just a weird concept. And I kind of feel like that way about the, uh, you know, you've got – Beasts in China that would be like, you know, the, the, from from native animals that you might find in China and you may wonder to yourself, you know, I wonder if that's out there. But I, I definitely affirm what you're doing is world building for sure, um, yeah. because, uh, you know, you've got you've got this sense that like your world is you're making it believable and you're establishing boundaries as you go, which is a big element of world building. Like one one thing was your guy, uh, your sniper is flying. And he has a rifle in his arms, and he has wings on his back. We understand now that flying guys can fly and shoot. That establishes a a world-building concept or idea that you can then work on on later as you go through. And uh, the other thing I noticed was there was a bird person who was pregnant, and I was like – Birds can get pregnant. Okay, good to know. You know they don't lay <laughs> eggs, right? Like it's it's yeah. it's kind of you, you know you start piecing these things together, and like even as you say, you've got this idea that two bison make a bison, and um, you know presumably two two panda people in China would make a panda person, uh, and that's kind of you know it 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 kind of adds up. And so I've got some boundaries and I've got some rails that I can operate under.
1: Yes. And, yeah, a uh, like a panda father and a koi fish mother would make a very interesting baby.
0: I'm pretty so. sure that's a star sign. Isn't that a star sign? It's goatfish. Goatfish. Capricorn, right? I think that one's that one's a goatfish. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm a goatfish, and my dad is a fish, and my mom is a goat. I think. So. Uh, wow. that, I mean, if if that doesn't prove it, I don't know what does. Um. But anyway, uh, I digress. Um. <laughs> Is there, is there any reason, like, so you chose this post-apocalyptic setting. Um, why not just set it in, like, the Old West and just say, this is an alternate history where zoomorphism just kind of struck? Like, is the post-apocalyptic element critical to the, the way you wanted to tell this story? Is there a reason why they must uh, need to harken back to a time when man was ascendant? it's
1: um, a good question. Um, yeah, I've
0: thrown you for a loop. I didn't prep you for well, this
1: one. Well, <laughs> no, I think, I think I want to include some science fiction elements, particularly going forward, that would make okay. the most sense that way. But I think that on a on another level, I kind of wanted to write old millennials. Um, so mm. this is 30 years in the future. So if I'm still kicking around, I'm approaching 60. And yeah, hopefully yeah. I'm some kind of turtle zoomorph. Um. Aside from that, you know, it's kind of like, there is a certain element of, like, generational divides that maybe is not super prevalent at this point.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: But, um, you know, there's there's this new generation that this is their world that they've been born into with these claws, fur, scales, whatever it is. And, um, you know, to them, that's just, that is what it is. So I think... I think in some ways like I wanted it to be us that went through this and I kind of just wanted it to just kind of explore that a little bit and I don't know I guess it's it's a concept that was important to me but that I never dove that far into myself because I was more concerned about laying the groundwork. Mm-hmm.
0: I like that. That's that's interesting. It's the observations that you're taking of our, of our present culture and being able to apply them then to a new setting. So it's uh, that's that's interesting, and um, and that applies really well. And I, I think we'll probably start to draw it to a close here, but just as we're kind of finishing up, where can we find your stuff?
1: Okay, so uh, the webcomic can be found at recovery.webcomic.ws. Um, and that'll take you right to the most recent page, which is a redesign announcement. But there's you can <laughs> you can uh, uh, navigate from there. I, uh, just down at the bottom, there's a you know a, a back arrow that says mm-hmm. first to go start at the beginning and and read through. Um, and so that's where you can find the comic. And then you can also find me on Instagram at art by Dave S, which alternatively yeah. could pr- be pronounced art by Dave's, um, but it's just one of me. Uh, oh, good to know. It's my, it's my, the, my last initial there. So, um, and that's all just one word, no underscores, no punctuation, just uh, one fluid uh, statement.
0: Sounds good. And um, we'll definitely put links to those in the show notes as well so people can find you. And, you know, we got to know, what's the time frame on your redesign?
1: So the first page on Recovery is a, like a cover for the whole series, like a kind of a pre-cover. Um, hmm. I'm working on redoing that in my new style. Once I'm done that, I'm going to start working on pages for the like remainder of issue three, which I stopped right in the middle of issue three <laughs> in the yeah. middle of this like existential art crisis. Um, and uh, so there's going to be, I think, 15 or 16 pages left for me to do. Great. Once I have those completed, I'll start posting again. I'd like to do that in a timely manner, but I can't put a date on it. So. Okay thank
0: you so much for joining us man we always love to host people and uh yeah that about wraps it for today thanks again man all right thank you thank you for joining Seth and i on the world craft club podcast please go ahead and like us subscribe to us on your preferred app and if you use itunes rate us five stars if you think we're worth the rate it really helps our numbers If you're listening here, you're missing out on half the content, along with loads of other goodies. So please consider becoming an exclusive club member at our Patreon page, starting at as low as $5 a month. If you have any questions, you can go ahead and jump on our webpage, worldcraftclub.com, to get the latest updates on our blog. We're also available on Twitter and Instagram. This has been the World Craft Club podcast. Thank you for listening.